1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Hi, everyone. Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month discounts on intelligence squared plus priority access to our live in-person events and access to our premium monthly newsletter sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com thanks for all your support welcome to intelligence squared i'm connor boyle in recent weeks anxiety has been mounting around the world concerning russian president vladimir putin's nuclear threats On Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden warned that the risk of nuclear Armageddon is at its highest level since the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. So, on this episode of the Sunday Debate, we're asking, can we rely on nuclear deterrence? We're joined this week by three experts to understand the realities of nuclear threat how nuclear strategy has developed in the last 60 years, and whether Russia's nuclear threats will be deterred. Our host for this discussion is Josh Glancy, special correspondent at The Sunday Times. Here's Josh with more.
2: When this debate was proposed to me a few days ago, it seemed topical. It it now seems uh, scarily so. Um, we're going to be talking about can we rely on nuclear deterrence. Um, This is the subject that's increasingly taking up a lot of time and attention in the capitals of power around the world and and among the sort of leading thinkers, strategic nuclear military thinkers, and we have three of them on with us today. Two weeks ago, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, really set this subject alight. He put a broadcast out saying uh, in rather menacing terms that Russia has nuclear weapons, as we know, and that they are not afraid to use them. And he used the words, this is not a bluff. This is clearly a potentially enormous escalation in the war in Ukraine. And it probably reflects the fact that the war isn't going that well for Putin. Uh, His initial strategic objectives have not been achieved. uh, And not only that, but his his armies are now in some cases on the back foot uh, in Ukraine. And so ever since he said those words, and and before really, ever since this war started, uh, we've been sort of feverishly trying to decode how serious is the threat? Of nuclear war and it's led us to back to some of the very basic foundations of thought in this area you know can we rely on this doctrine of mutually assured destruction is it out of date you know does the sort of theory of nuclear war still hold up in this current moment you know the nuclear weapons have been used only twice in warfare in hiroshima and nagasaki obviously as everyone knows back in 1945 and since then in some ways many would argue they've kept the world peaceful that great powers can't really go to war with one another anymore because of this idea of mutually assured destruction that actually Russia, America, China and others, including Britain and France couldn't fight each other really even if they wanted to directly because of the fact that they could destroy each other with the press of a button. But Ukraine and everything we're seeing there is starting to test these ideas. And so what we're gonna do today is look at that war and how worried we should be and what's happening. But then also look at some of these broader ideas around nuclear war and, and what they mean today and whether their meaning has changed at all. I'm very lucky to be joined by three uh, top experts in this field. We have um, Marion Messmer, who is a senior research fellow at Chatham House. Hi, Marion. Hi. We have Andre Baklitsky, who's a senior researcher at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. Hi, Andre. Thanks for having me. And we have William Albert who is Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the Institute for Strategic Studies. Hello. So welcome all of you to Intelligence Squared. I, I will caveat this discussion uh, very slightly by saying that this is obviously a fluid situation in both Ukraine and Russia. And tomorrow uh, could bring different news, worse news uh, or better. But with that in mind, you know, people have told me uh, that Putin has been saying things in recent days, such as, I will do the Cuban Missile Crisis properly, which is a slightly ominous phrase. So I'd like to ask each of you in turn, perhaps we'll start with Marion, how worried are you right now?
3: The situation is definitely worrying. Um, I think the the risk for nuclear conflict is higher if there is an ongoing war or crisis situation that involves a nuclear power. However, you mentioned in your introduction a few things around nuclear deterrence, and All of these ideas are predicated around the the idea that this conflict is taking place between two powers that both have nuclear weapons. And the important point for me uh, in the current situation is that Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons. So when we've heard the threats from Russia, they were always aimed at NATO. And so in my reading of the situation, they were actually aimed at ensuring that Russia essentially could continue the war in Ukraine as it wanted without risking NATO involvement. So I am worried and what is happening in Ukraine is absolutely horrendous, but um, I don't think we need to be worried about nuclear war starting right this minute or anytime soon. I think at this point, nuclear threats are about you know keeping NATO at its arm's length rather than um, about actually being used in Ukraine.
2: And Andre, I, I was reading a, a piece about this in the Atlantic magazine yesterday, which made the assessment that we're as close to nuclear war now as we have been at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do do you believe that to be an accurate assessment? Mm, It's
4: a great question. I wish I knew because, uh, as you said, nuclear war only happened once 1945, never happened since. So all of the percentages and calculations are to a certain extent an art, not a science you can give, you can put any number there. Frankly, I don't like the direction in which this whole situation is going. I agree with Marian that it's not like we're going to have a nuclear war tomorrow, but there is this shift in the discussion because, again, as Marian said, previously we were mostly thinking about a nuclear war between nuclear powers. And because there is this mutual assured destruction thing, or at least each country could wreak a lot of havoc with other country. There was this feeling that there would be no nuclear war. Nuclear war cannot be won, should not be fought. And it's really hard to either role-playing some of those scenarios, trying to get to nuclear war from a conventional conflict. And it's just hard to go there, even if there is a war, even if there, as you know, Uh, planes shut down. It's hard to to see how you move from from any of those events to then nuclear escalation. It just doesn't go there. However, now what we're starting to see and uh, President Putin in his uh, speech uh, announcing that these new regions would join Russia under four regions of Ukraine, he is specifically saying that Russia's territorial inte- integrity is something which would be protected by Russian nuclear weapon. And at the very moment when Russia annexed those territories, when it started calling those territories its own territories, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is ongoing in uh, Kherson region, in uh, Kharkiv region, now going to Luhansk and Donetsk, that would mean the Russian territorial integrity is threatened, is breached. And Putin was quite clear that he, he is considering uh, nuclear weapons as a response to that. And then we heard from people like Dmitry Medvedev, former president, now deputy head of security council, specifically discussing scenarios of, you know, nuclear warfighting in Ukraine. Again, as I said, it doesn't mean that Russia is going to use nuclear weapons. But uh, now for the first time, we see a clear path to that nuclear use. Then, of course, you are getting all sorts of dilemmas, which action would trigger this response, there is a continuous Ukrainian assault, which city is important enough, and so on and so forth. But we're now in kind of a new situation, uh, I would say, uncharted territory. So probably I I wouldn't say that we are closest to
2: nuclear war, but there are just new pathways to it, which we're not really considering before. And William, given that, is it strangely the case now that the better the war goes for Ukraine in conventional terms, the more progress they make on the ground, uh, as we've seen in recent weeks, um, the higher the risk becomes of some sort of nuclear response from Putin, that he doesn't have many other options or he starts to feel like he has to strike out and achieve some some form of victory on on the battlefield. Although most people, certainly in Britain uh, and many other places, support Ukraine in this war, should, should we also, in a funny way, be concerned as we see them Make progress on the battlefield?
5: No. And um, I think that's exactly what Russia would like us to do. Russia is trying to use nuclear threats for coercive outcomes. And one outcome that Putin is, I believe, now seeking is to try to force the West to push Ukraine into negotiations through nuclear threats. And, you know, quite frankly, when people say this is the worst nuclear crisis since 1962, I assume this is because humanity has a terrible memory for pain. And is really unable to remember of the past. I would say 1983 was probably a series of rolling crises far more significant than the crisis that we face today. Remember, this is Abel Archer. This is uh, the Korean Airline shootdown. Uh, this was general fear that Reagan was going to start World War III from the Soviets. Uh, you could look at the Yom Kippur War. You can. There are lots of times when the U.S. and the Soviets came far closer to nuclear war. And in fact, when you look at what the United States has been saying, there's no evidence that Russia is actually moving any of their nuclear weapons. And in fact, I think the best analogy for what's happening right now, if you'll remember, during the Vietnam War, Nixon wanted to coerce the North Vietnamese into negotiations. And so he explicitly told his staff he was going to act like a madman and threaten nuclear use in order to push the North Vietnamese into negotiating on American terms. And guess what? It didn't work because using nuclear weapons for coercive outcomes is very, very difficult. You really have to instill in the other side the belief that you are threatening their core interests and they are willing to go to nuclear war. The other thing that you have to do, I think, is coerce the other side that there is a credible use of nuclear weapons that could achieve some kind of aim other than the coercive political aim. And that's what I keep looking at. I mean, I, I published an op-ed back in April with Fabian Hoffman, where we looked at different use scenarios. and. Quite frankly, there's really no battlefield game that would be maximized by nuclear use. The only real scenario where I could see a nuclear use that might be considered useful would be against a city to try to really horrify the West so much that it forces them into negotiation. But then you think about what the world would look like after Russian first use in this conflict. It would be a world where even India and China would have to reduce, if not eliminate, their cooperation with Russia. It would turn Russia into a pariah state in the way that they really can't imagine. And it would make Pyongyang look about as connected as Paris in terms of global opprobrium. So I really, I can't see a military use for it. I can't see the political coercion working. And the declaration that, you know, an attack on this the newly annexed Russian territory is an attack on Russia well, they don't even control all of the territory that they've claimed annexed. And this this is just one of those things that suggests to me there is a coercive element here, and it's not tremendously credible tied to use, and we're just not seeing the types of moves that Russia would make in order to prepare for a small or large-scale nuclear strike. And if they were going to do a small-scale nuclear strike, they would have to prepare themselves strategically as well, because there would be a fear that the West would escalate. So Yeah, I I think we would see this coming, and there would have to be some kind of credible target, and there would have to be some sort of credible outcome afterwards where Russia is in a better position and not in a horrifically worse situation if they use nuclear weapons themselves. Right, well, I'm going to pause my uh, large
2: order of iodine tablets for now (laughs) because that was um, mildly reassuring from the three of you on on the level of threat we're currently facing, um, certainly more reassuring than my my Twitter feed. I thought we'd maybe come back to the current situation because there's a lot more I want to ask you and a lot more to say, I think. And let's just sort of take a little step back and remind us of how we got to this point. So, you know, it's 1945, two nuclear bombs decimate Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Why haven't we seen a nuclear bomb used in anger since? How did this idea of mutually assured destruction, this kind of equilibrium that we've had since evolve. Um Marion, if you maybe you want to start that off, but Andre and, and William obviously feel free to, to jump in as well.
3: That's a lot of history to try and <laughs> yeah, sum up. We're very gonna need quickly. a potted version. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll I'll do my very best. So um I think part of the reason is that the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was obviously horrendous. You know, I think we've all no matter whether we're nuclear experts or not, we've all seen images of what these cities look like. Most of us have probably heard survivors testimonials and so on. So it very be quick, quickly became very apparent that the destructive power of nuclear weapons is incredible. And, um, and I think what we also need to keep in mind here is that the bombs that we have today in most countries' arsenals are actually um, far more powerful than the bombs that were used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, um, so the destructive power of any single nuclear weapon today far exceeds that of those used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In a sense, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were a demonstration of what nuclear weapons can do. And then um, it quickly became apparent that um, as the Soviet Union and the United States were engaging each other in the Cold War, an arms race for nuclear supremacy um, was going to be part of the checks and balances that ended up forming a lot of the Cold War architecture. So we've earlier already... Alluded to mutually assured destruction. That was, that was a sort of idea that underpinned deterrence thinking, whereby the idea was that because both the United States and the Soviet Union could essentially completely eliminate the other and actually eliminate all lives on Earth pretty much, they wouldn't engage each other in conflict directly because the potential outcome was far too terrible to even consider. So a lot of deterrence theorists essentially looked at, you know, the destruction that was, uh, that was caused by World War I and World War II, and were thinking about how we could avoid ever being in that situation again. And um, in short, nuclear weapons were intended to be the insurance policy that was meant to be so terrible that we wouldn't engage in any kind of conflict, um, as long as the other side also had nuclear weapons. I'm going to pass here and let someone (laughs) else pick up the slack and correct anything that I may have said.
2: Well, you know, I mean, I think it was the American political scientist, Kenneth Waltz, who said um, those who like peace should love nuclear weapons. And so, obviously, there has been plenty of wars since 1945. I don't think we could claim that they brought us peace, but they maybe have provided a backstop or brought some level of stability to great power relations uh, since the Second World War. Do you agree with that, William? Do you think that, that actually they are in a bizarre way, uh, a force for peace in the world?
5: Or is that taking it too far? Too, uh so Yeah, I, I think that's going a little bit too far, simply because there are very few truly bilateral conflicts on Earth. And so the idea that nuclear weapons really buy you stability, uh, because sure, the US and the Soviets, that's the classical example. But then, of course, the UK and France built their nuclear arsenals. China built their nuclear arsenal. India built their nuclear arsenal. Pakistan built their nuclear... You know, you have all these... Very complex relationships. Uh, North Korea, for instance, you know, is is them having nuclear weapons a force for stability and good? Uh, I don't think many countries in, in East Asia would would agree that that's the case. I would say the theory of mutually assured destruction is one of those theories that was taken on the fly during the Cold War as they were trying to figure out how to survive in an unprecedented situation in in human uh, development. And as Marion pointed out, it was really the development of the super, as they called it at the time, or the hydrogen bomb, what we call thermonuclear weapons, the idea of 10 and 15 and 50 megaton weapons that could really annihilate mankind. At first, there was a lot of theory that nuclear weapons were going to be used just like big artillery. But even then, when the US and the Soviets actually tried to exercise this, it became a lot more complicated than they thought. And as we've had revolutions in precision weaponry you can actually use conventional weapons now for a lot of missions that we thought that were nuclear only and actually it's precision weapons precision conventional weapons that have become a real point of instability in the world right now Um, but i still don't think that the pursuit of nuclear weapons is the sine qua non for any country to find peace and in fact you know it's the whole idea that you don't want to see your cities attacked you don't want to be vulnerable that pushed the United States into developing missile defense, which further destabilized the uh, Russian concepts of mutually assured destruction and has led to further instabilities. Basically, countries will always try to kill each other. And you know nuclear weapons have perhaps stabilized some relationships, but there's no silver bullet. And countries will continue to seek ways through technology and apply technology to defeat each other. So I don't think nuclear weapons are the last answer in stability in the world. And Andre, I
2: mean, this idea, these doctrines were really came about from the highest points of the Cold War, really. And they were forged in that cauldron. We live in a different world now. Uh, there are many more nuclear powers, some also who are close to becoming joining that club. We don't exactly know how close at times. Are these doctrines, do they still hold? I mean, I know in in 2008, Henry Kissinger and and a group of other prominent scholars came out and said it was, it was time to move on from mutually assured destruction and that, that we had to sort of think about ways to disarm or at least turn the volume down on this. But it strikes me that actually the high point of the sort of campaigns for nuclear disarmament has long passed and actually there isn't really any significant movement to disarm. So, so where are we now as opposed to where we were sort of 40 years ago? Has anything really changed or are we still sort of abiding by that same Cold War idea? Right. A lot
4: of questions. <laughs> so maybe just to follow up a little bit on what my colleague said uh, before, I think the the reason why we didn't have nuclear wars, uh, nuclear use since 1945 is threefold. Uh, first of all, it's luck. We've been lucky. Uh, it could have been very differently. We know a lot of instances where there were serious consideration of using nuclear weapons. Not all of them, you know, in a superpower exchange. Uh, Korean War, uh, U.S. administration was seriously considering using nuclear weapons there. It wouldn't be against Soviet Union; it wouldn't be calling for retaliation. But then they just decided not to. You know, Yom Kippur War. From what we know now, Israel had already uh, assembled nuclear weapons at that point. Had it gone differently, they could have used whatever they had just to stop them to being slaughtered and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, even those latest exchanges between President Trump at that time and North Korean leader, if something went wrong, if someone gave an order to do something crazy, we could have been in in a nuclear war. And there's a great book by Jeffrey Lewis uh, playing out exactly this scenario a nuclear war between the United States and uh, DPRK. So luck is the first one. The second one is horror. And horror was, and as Marion mentioned it, people who were making decisions about nuclear weapons. They went through the Second World War, and they knew what huge destruction and a lot of killing meant. And uh, yes, Hiroshima and Nagasaki was bad, but you fire bombing of Tokyo was also bad. No nuclear weapons were used. But uh, once the Second World War, the war against the evil, was ended, nobody wanted similar destruction. So people knew what nuclear exchange would mean and just didn't want to go there. And the last, I think, not least, is habit. So every day we are not having a nuclear war. It's now 77 or 78 years almost. We are one step further from it and the nuclear use becomes less and less possible because you'd have to break a taboo which held so long and this feeling that nuclear weapons are so destructive and this is gonna be the end of things as we know them. So every day we are not using them is getting us further from this. However, as you said, the times are changing. Maybe there is less horror uh, in the humanity. Maybe our luck uh, is, is not going to always be with us. And you know, this, this force of habit, I think, is very important at the moment. Just every day, making sure that those weapons are not used as they haven't been before, making sure that all the leaders understand that it would be Against the interest uh, that those shouldn't even sought to be uh, as weapons, really, and I think this is this is something we're trying to do at this very podcast. explained that no using nuclear weapons in in any scenario would not be beneficial for you for your security and what have
2: you. So in a horrible way, this entire war to me it seems like in some ways m- makes the case for having nukes because Putin has been highly unsuccessful for the most part on the battlefield and yet still has this strength. This ace card. And, and, you know, for that reason, America and others have been somewhat cautious about how far they want to intervene. Uh, Similarly, Ukraine has done well on the battlefield, but still has this shadow hanging over them that they could somehow lose catastrophically because of these weapons. You know, I think back to reports when uh, Colonel Gaddafi died. I remember reading that, that Kim Jong un was looking at this very carefully and thinking, well, I don't want to go that way, and it's nuclear weapons in a way that can potentially protect him from that. And we know actually that Ukraine, in some ways, gave up its nuclear weapons. In that they had nuclear weapons stationed in Ukraine during the Soviet Union era, but but those are no longer there. So, if if you're an aspirant nuclear power or a dictator who's thinking about going into this area, doesn't this war rather suggest that actually it is still the the kind of ace card in in geopolitics and in military conflict and that and therefore one ought to try and have that. What do you think, William? Uh,
5: well, uh, yeah, how do you look at that? I would say, you know, for a country like North Korea or Iran, I mean, the reason no one has invaded them and changed their government is because invading them and changing their government would be unbelievably conventionally costly. Uh, the idea that Iran needs nuclear weapons to defend itself. I mean, I think after Iraq, after Afghanistan, and now after Ukraine, the idea of you know, taking over Iran is just, it's, it's bonkers. So I, I don't think nuclear weapons were as necessary in a bunch of the cases where they have proliferated to. Uh, and I think actually, if Russia loses, and, and not just loses, but is seen to lose, then I think the case for nuclear weapons becomes a little bit harder. Um, here's a country that has attempted to invade a neighbor you know, with just a land invasion right across a a contiguous border, you know, what does this do for China thinking about Taiwan? China, a nuclear armed state, Taiwan, not a nuclear armed state. How would they conduct the most complex amphibious invasion in history in order to take Taiwan? Does Taiwan need nuclear weapons? I mean, I would would argue no. Again, it's more about geography and the cost of invasion that keeps China from doing so. And China continually says they're going to build up their forces. But I I think right now they're having a long, sober look. If Russia couldn't move 200,000 troops across a land border and win, how on earth are they going to conduct this complex kind of invasion? So, yeah, I think, I hope the lesson coming away from this is Russia's massive nuclear arsenal is not tremendously effective at achieving coercive outcomes. It is effective at keeping NATO out of the conflict, and it's kept the United States from intervening directly, so, so direct deterrence has worked, but in terms of gaining everything you want from foreign policy, nuclear weapons are not the key. They're, 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 they tend to be a very high cost, high political cost option with relatively small gains, a significant gain though. I mean, deterrence from nuclear attack by another nuclear power is nothing to, nothing to denigrate in terms of outcomes, but it just it doesn't win you everything.
0: Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify for just 4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. Dot .com that's IQ the numeral 2 premium.supercast.com dot dot or see the link in the description thank you for all your support That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. netsuite.com/squared.
2: And so Marion we hear a lot to look back directly at this conflict. We hear a lot about this this phrase tactical nukes. We hear that Russia has a lot of tactical nukes, uh, more than more than anyone else, and that if Putin does decide to go down this route, it would be tactical nukes that he would likely use. What are tactical nukes, and and how would he go about using them? And and how do they distinct? How do we distinguish them from other nukes, strategic nukes? I suppose one might call them.
3: Yeah. So one distinction that can be made between nuclear weapons is this distinction between strategic and tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, when people refer to tactical nuclear weapons, they usually mean lower yield, shorter range nuclear weapons. Um, they're sometimes also called battlefield nuclear weapons because of their intended use on the battlefield. I would point out at this point that actually we've never seen this use. And uh, as William mentioned earlier, he and Fabian Hoffman wrote a really interesting piece in the in the Washington Post um, in April which actually goes into how these nuclear weapons might be used. And, you know, the the conclusion that they draw is that there is no strategic advantage to using any kind of nuclear weapon, but also not a battlefield nuclear weapon. And I would have to agree with that. Um, It would be incredibly difficult to use a tactical nuclear weapon in a way that doesn't also impact on Russian soldiers who might be there. Because while the actual targets could be chosen carefully, it's much harder to control... Other elements such as the fallout that might come from the radioactivity, uh, and then the other the other big aspect of this is, of course, that even using a so-called smaller or uh, tactical nuclear weapon would still break this long taboo that we have around nuclear use. So, if Russia were to take this step, they would essentially be the first country since 1945 to use a nuclear weapon, and it wouldn't really matter that it's. A battlefield nuclear weapon, they would, they would still be faced with the same international backlash that they could expect. So in that sense, I really don't see any tactical advantage that they might have from using those weapons. And I think on the contrary, it would actually probably cause even more opposition to the war in Ukraine. And they would also risk losing other international allies that they might still have at this point.
2: So Andre, before I, before I fully cancel my iodine tablet order, what is the sort of worst case scenario here? Because it strikes me that one possibility is that Vladimir Putin is no longer a rational actor, as we we might call it, that that he actually could become sort of unhinged and, and decide to do this, or that actually he could make a rational decision that his regime's survival, if things are going so badly, if his front collapses in Ukraine and things get very dodgy at home, that his regime's survival is dependent on using one of these weapons can you envision a scenario like that where either a rational or an irrational Putin decides that this is actually in his interests right so when we as a humanity
4: created nuclear weapons so uh, we figured out that the sole decision making authority would be one person in any country so it would be US president UK prime minister or Russian president in this case and we decided so because the idea was that if there is incoming a nuclear attack, you would have to respond with your nuclear weapons. You wouldn't have time to consult, to call up a meeting with your parliament or what have you, you would have to act very quickly. So now we are in a situation where one person in each country pretty much has the final say about what to use them. In that sense, a lot depends on what this one person uh, might decide. That's unfortunate. I don't think that's a, that's a great approach to those things. The worst-case scenario, as you said, would be any nuclear weapon use, especially a nuclear weapon use against targets, uh, There would people be involved and people would die, and God forbid, cities. However, the uh, counterfactual to that would be is that nuclear weapons are not magic wand. They are not solving all of your problem in a miraculous ways. They are just very less uh, explosive. So. This would—this gamble uh, would be based on the idea that it would be a political act making the other side to capitulate, basically. Threatening use of more nuclear weapons and showing your resolve. It's unclear what kind of situation you're in if, after this first use, uh, your political situation doesn't change and the military underground ground is not changing. You cannot target with nuclear weapons all of the enemy soldiers. Nuclear weapons were never planned to do that, really. And uh, if you cannot hold the ground militarily, nuclear weapons cannot help you do that. A lot of problems arise. Uh, For example, are you sure that use of nuclear weapons will not be retaliated with nuclear weapons? Yes. The general assumption is that other countries would not intervene because it's not their direct problem and that they don't have treaty obligations, but there was also assumption before the war started that the West would not be united in imposing sanctions. It was an assumption that the West would not provide Ukraine high-end equipment, and those assumptions were wrong in the end. So at least you have to contend with the possibility that you know, the shock of nuclear use, especially if there is a huge loss of life would push the Western leaders or would have you to 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 retaliate in kind, and so on and so forth. So it seems that nuclear use would be the ultimate gamble. And another thing which I think is worth mentioning, a lot of this almost mystical power of nuclear weapons is based on this uh, premise that they were never used, and that their use would be the world ending. That's that's They have to be avoided at any cost. Well, if you use them and the world doesn't end, you just lost tremendous uh, potential. All of a sudden, you don't have this super cloud, which was protecting before that. It becomes sinkable to wage wars between great powers. So I think there'll be a huge Pandora box opened uh, if there is ever a nuclear use. And I think everybody would will be much safer if they are never used.
2: And so I'm interested, William, in your view on the United States in all of this, um, they're obviously heavily arming Ukraine. Uh, and we've read that they have issued warnings publicly and privately to Russia not to use these weapons. There's clearly some level of, of concern in Washington uh, about about this possibility. Um, and that they reportedly have Tiger teams in, in D.C. who are um, assessing... The situation and and, and and how America might respond. I mean, w- what would America do in such a si- situation, and what what should America do, um, both to prevent it happening, a- and if if God forbid it did happen, to punish Russia f- for its transgression.
5: Well, that's uh, that's exactly the right question to be asking, and the time to be thinking about that is before Russia does anything. Uh, You have to make it clear through private bilateral channels that any introduction of nuclear weapons into this conflict would elicit a response and you don't have to specify what that response would be. Uh, Personally, I think it would be kinetic. I think the United States would use uh, precision conventional strikes just like uh, they did in Syria with the UK and France's support uh, when um, Syria used chemical weapons. And yeah, there are risks to that, but I think there's a much bigger risk of not responding. If Russia uses nuclear weapons, if they're able to course a positive outcome, then it does set off, you know, the the firing gun for proliferation around the world and as Andre pointed out, it makes nuclear use between the great powers uh but between any powers, between India and Pakistan, between, you know, the Korean peninsula, uh, much more likely. And uh, as Marion points out, you know, when you when you really think about it, Okay, so a strategic nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon that, the, that is longer in range, it's intended uh, on ICBM sub launch ballistic missiles or longer range uh, heavy bomber air launch cruise missiles to ef- affect a strategic outcome. So you know the complete change in the strategic balance between the U.S. and Russia or U.S. and China or et cetera. Tactical nuclear weapons, we're talking about the tactical level of battle, so a battlefield. That's what it means. It's it meant to create a tactical outcome. So, to use a tactical nuclear weapon, so to use a nuclear weapon, it, this made sense in the Cold War and it makes sense in certain conventional scenarios when you're talking about using a nuclear weapon against a massive amount of conventional forces concentrated on the battlefield. And that's not what, you, what Ukraine is doing. Ukraine is very intelligently using maneuver to outflank the Russians. They're using longer range conventional weapons, precision guided, to destroy command and control and Russian concentrations of forces. And quite frankly, Russia's multiple launch uh, rocket systems, like the Tornado, are able to deliver the kinds of effects that you would want a small nuclear weapon to have on a battlefield anyway. There's, there's, there's simply no logic to it. And the changes that that would evince would be huge. So the United States is sending deterrence messages to Russia, I think, privately. But we also see the B-52 flights and B-2 flights. Um, if you follow Hans Christensen on Twitter, he quite often will post. Uh, you know there's a whole family of people out there who watch aircraft on open radar sources. And you can see the United States flying B-52s all the time, sending these kind of subtle deterrence messages to Russia. There was an operation called Bomber Task Force earlier this year that the United States flew, again, sending steady deterrence messages. They postponed a Minuteman 3 launch, but they did conduct that launch. Uh, The French have conducted the largest submarine deployment that they've done in 30 years. Uh, The UK has sent deterrence messages. So I think everyone is sending messages to Russia that nuclear use in this conflict is not in their interest. I think they get that. I think they would still like to see coercive outcomes. But we have to send messages that any introduction of nuclear weapons into this conflict is going to have a huge effect. And quite frankly, you know there's easier ways for Russia to make regime change a global aim uh, or you know to end his uh, particular rule. Uh, there's much easier ways to do that than to introduce nuclear weapons to this conflict. I think he believes regime preservation is of the utmost importance. I think he has some real goals that he wants to achieve in Ukraine. And I think introducing nuclear weapons actually makes those gains less and not more likely. And I think that's the message that the U.S. is sending every day to their Russian compatriots.
2: I was using those uh, flight tracker apps to look at Elon Musk's private jet, but clearly there are (laughs) deeper purposes for them. Um, Marion, we hear a lot about back-channel diplomacy when when these discussions come up, going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And... I think most of us hope that somewhere there's a red phone that connects, you know, some unknown man in the Kremlin to some unknown man in the White House. You know, if things got really bad, does back channel diplomacy work in these circumstances? Is, is it happening now? Is, is there a, Are there very deep, off the record conversations happening still between Washington and Moscow? And can we be somewhat reassured by that?
3: I would for sure hope that they're happening. Um, one of the things that I've been saying for years now is that communication is more and more important the more urgent the crisis that we're in is. Um, and um, the the time at which we really ought to be worried is when communication stops entirely, because one of, the, one of the only ways how we can ensure that inadvertent escalation doesn't happen is by ensuring that we read each other's signals correctly. So while... A lot of the, the sort of public-facing communication has ceased at this point because that's also an important political message. I would imagine that back-channel communication is still ongoing and um, fulfills a really important role. I mean, one of the, one of the important aspects of, the, of some of the nuclear threats um, we've seen from Russia, I think, might also be influencing different, different publics in different European countries, for example. One of the things I've seen concerned about is whether the combination of, you know, a cost of living crisis and energy crisis combined with nuclear threats might mean that people become less likely to want to support Ukraine because it is seen as, you know, that much more costly to do so. And and that's essentially the impact, you know, that that we can try to have with public messaging. But the, the back channel communication would be very much about crisis communication, you know, conveying some of these messages that William was talking about, about trying to make clear uh, what red lines might be, um, trying to de-escalate in a sense, or at least trying to avoid uh, further escalation. And having these conversations is indeed incredibly important during a crisis.
2: Okay, so the, the red phone at least exists metaphorically, we hope. Andre, where is China in all of this? I mean, the, the, there is one hope that um, that a deterrent for Russia is, is, is the Chinese, who, who haven't shown any great enthusiasm for the war in general, and aren't particularly well intentioned towards any use of nuclear weapons. Do you think, is China a deterrent uh, in this situation? Well, Chinese,
4: but also the Indians, who are top Russian customers for the um, hydrocarbons, which are now not going to Europe. So I think both countries have has shown that they are not thrilled with the ongoing situation. Coincidentally, both countries have uh, such called no first-use policy, both a nuclear weapon state, but both forego the option of going first, which means they don't see a role for nuclear weapons in any conventional conflict. I think it would be a good time to maybe elevate the idea of, you know, no first-use and discuss it more thoroughly on international level, you know, inviting China, inviting India. India. To come up to give their perspectives, uh, involved in Russia as a nuclear open state, as a close partner of China, to look into those uh, kind of scenarios and to to say, look, uh, this is this is something we uh, we think would be a good idea to do and to follow. Another idea, more specifically, there have been for quite a long time discussion of giving so called negative security guarantees, which. Nuclear weapon states give to non-nuclear weapon states saying, like, we, we're not going to target you with nuclear weapons because you don't have them, and we reserve those only for for nuclear targets. Though, those are legally binding, for example, for nuclear weapon, for weapons-free zones. So, nuclear weapon states have promised not to target anyone in Latin America where there is a nuclear weapon-free zone in uh, in Africa, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, I think, uh, potentially, this is something that the national community could do uh, without trying to push China to go out and contradict Russia or accuse Russia of anything, which they're clearly not going to do. Same with India. We just saw both China and India abstain uh, during the um, vote in the Security Council about the annexation of Ukrainian territory, though both India and China are uh, pro-territorial integrity. They didn't want to to oppose Russia on this, so I think this, you know, roundabout, so to say, way could be helpful to 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 bring China and India and broad international community, frankly, on board and say, look, this is something nobody wants
2: uh, to happen. I think we're reaching our denouement here, but but William, uh, interested in some final thoughts from you on what lessons we can learn from this situation, in Ukraine. I mean, are we? Are we bound to a future of nuclear weapons indefinitely? Uh, should we be drawing from conclusions from this conflict that actually we need to re-energise the push for disarmament? Or is, that, is this actually, as maybe you've indicated, uh, this conflict actually showing us that nuclear weapons don't pose quite as much threat as, as people sometimes think? What, what do you think? The, the conc- obviously, the conflict is ongoing, so any conclusions are tentative at this point. But what do you think we might conclude so far?
5: Well, I think... For countries that currently possess nuclear weapons, they think that they need them for very specific reasons. For a country like Russia right now, and the United States in the Vietnam War, seeking coercive outcomes, seeking magical outcomes with nuclear weapons just doesn't work. I would like to see the elimination of nuclear weapons, but actually right now we see a Russia and China and other countries that are seeking to rewrite the international order, and they think the backstop of having nuclear weapons helps them in challenging the status quo, challenging other countries. So I don't think there's any short to medium term chances for reduction in nuclear weapons. I do think what we really need to have is a a change of attitude in in Moscow in particular, where it thinks that uh, it needs to use force to change borders, things like that. This is just a really terrible situation. Uh, One other thing I wanted to add back onto uh, Marian's great answer before as well, There does exist something called the Nuclear Risk Reduction Center. There's one in Moscow. There's one in D.C. The one in D.C. is in the State Department. You can go visit it. This is exactly what you would dream of in terms of contacts between the U.S. and the Russian. It was established in 87, as part of the INF Treaty, and it is now used to do all treaty communications between the US and Russia, but in addition, missile launch notifications, large-scale exercise notifications, notices to airmen, KO notifications, everything goes through these centers. They also have updated the hotline many, many times, it's now purely digital and completely encrypted. All the communication you would want between the US and Russia can happen through dedicated systems. Their diplomats see each other all the time in different international fora. So I do think Marion's right. There are quiet conversations going on all the time. And we, we should take some solace at that. We don't need some new magical way for the US and Russia to communicate. What we need is for Russia to stop invading its neighbors. That would be a wonderful way. And, you know, again, the big takeaway from nuclear weapons is they're not the end all be all. Uh, there is a role for them that the big countries that have them still believe that they will need them in the future but they don't solve everything and they don't give you all the outcomes you want in international conflict. I think that's so far the big takeaway. But if Russia does prevail, then I think there's going to be a lot of nations that are going to be questioning their choices. Uh, The United States is going to have to offer a lot more extended deterrence guarantees. I think uh, is right. The question on negative security assurances is going to be re-energized. But really then, how do you hold a great power to account if it says that it'll do something and then it doesn't? Uh, this has been a problem for the US and for Russia and for other countries throughout history. So, yeah, no easy answers and no really good lessons so far that I see.
2: Well, no easy answers, but a huge amount of insight, uh, nuance, and, and sobriety from the three of you. So, I, I really appreciate that conversation. I, I feel a little better. So, if nothing else, you've achieved that. Marion, William, Andre, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Great start. Thanks for having us. It's been a great pleasure. Um that was um Marion Mesmer, William Albert, and Andre Baklitzki. I've been Josh Clancy, and you've been listening to the Sunday debate on Intelligence Squared. Thank you for joining us and I hope we've cheered your weekend up. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com
1: or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute